Christianity is controversial because it confronts counterfeit gods. Jesus is divisive because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. The triune God that we worship, the God who is, will not share his glory or his worship with any other. He commands his people in Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4, You shall not have other gods besides me. You shall not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. The mission of the church is to go into a world that is filled with false gods and lifeless idols to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. The church's mission is to worship Jesus and to witness to the reality of Jesus' kingship. We are to call those around us who do not know God to come and know Him, to repent of sins and believe in Jesus. This task, preaching the gospel, that Jesus died for sins, is raised for justification, is ruling at God's right hand, it is returning to make all things new. That This task to preach the gospel is a dangerous one. That's why Jesus told the disciples when He sent them out on that paradigmatic mission in Matthew 10 and verse 16. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We get a little bit of a picture this morning in our text, which is Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41, of how the church can be as sheep among wolves. And the value in being wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And that's the exhortation this morning, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And the main idea, what we're going to see in our text, is that Christianity disturbs the status quo. It disturbs life as usual in submission to idols. Because when people start to become Christians, they change, and that means that the things they do change. And in Ephesus, it means the culture changes. And consequently, there is a riot here, an uproar in Ephesus. And we're going to consider this uproar in two parts. We're going to consider the work of the craftsmen in verses 21 through 27. And then we'll consider all the confusion that is happening in verses 28 through 41. We will pray and then begin together. Father, we thank you that every time we gather together, there is extraordinary blessing. Thank you that obedience to you always brings blessing, always is for our ultimate good. We thank you that you've given to us your word, that you've given to us a church to love one another. We thank you that you have given to us your Holy Spirit who binds us all together. We thank you that you are in our midst this morning. We ask that you would 
change us to be more like Jesus. That you would break us of our addictions to idols. That you would mend us up with the gospel of Christ. We come this morning hungry and thirsty for righteousness. We come this morning ready to feed upon your word, ready to feed upon Christ, to drink deeply of your spirit. We ask that you would, would grant us these things, that you would meet us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. We've seen this pattern happen throughout Acts. The church has filled up Jerusalem with its witness, and that witness, along with the gospel word, has leaked out into Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. The word of God is prevailing. People are believing in Jesus. We've seen it happen time and time again, and we, we pick up the story of God's Word permeating the world in Ephesus, here in chapter 19, where we've just seen Paul arrive and do extraordinary miracles, miraculous miracles, in order to demonstrate that God is more powerful, more grand than magic, than evil spirits, than pagan culture and cultic worship. That primary lesson will continue through the rest of the chapter this morning. We will see that indeed Jesus is greater than the false gods of Ephesus. And so we look at verse 21. Right after Paul has, or yeah, right after the people have gotten rid of their magic, right? They've repented of their sins. They've been trusting in Christ. They're all in on Jesus. And so now we're going to have a contrast where these other people, who same people hear the same, different people hear the same gospel, are going to cling to their idols rather than forsaking them. So there's a contrast happening here that's kind of neat to see. And so after they've burned all their magic and their books and recognized, they've magnified the name of Jesus, we read in verse 21, after these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. And after I've been there, he said, it's necessary for me to see Rome as well. After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And so these verses kind of unfold for us what is about to happen throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Paul, much like Jesus, is going to set himself towards Jerusalem where he knows he's going to encounter enemies and suffering. But Paul's not going to die in Jerusalem. Instead, he's going to be able to continue on to Rome though not, I think, in the way he had anticipated. And so that kind of sets the table for the rest of the book. And you also notice that he sends Timothy and Erastus ahead of himself into uh, Corinth in verse 20. Um, they're gonna, they, he's actually written the letter to the first Corinthians. And so he's sending that letter ahead of himself, in part to collect an offering. That's why he's going to stop in Corinth. He's going to collect this offering, and he's going to take it with him to Jerusalem. And so he's kind of sending guys ahead of him. Hey, get ready. I'm coming also. And it's in 1 Corinthians 16. Take up this offering for the poor who are in Jerusalem so that I can take it to them when I come to you. 
And so he's getting ready to do all these things. His ministry in Ephesus is coming to a close. Everything's gone really well, kind of peaceful for, for Paul. Usually there's all kinds of persecution, and we think he's about to move on. And then verse 23 comes, and we recognize that it wasn't such smooth sailing. But before we do get to verse 23, again, we see Paul planning to serve and love the church. Again, we see that his mission to strengthen disciples and to preach the gospel is first and foremost in his mind. And I just think when you look at Paul, you think here is someone who loves God's people, who loves God's church, who loves God's word. I just pray that the same is said of us. That we are people who plan to serve God's people, plan to preach God's word. That we make arrangements to encourage one another. Encourage people of God. To strengthen the disciples as Paul does. Okay, so, so verse 23, things get a little haywire. About that time, there was a major disturbance concerning the way. The way is just a name for Christians, Christianity, the church. Major disturbance arose concerning the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. And so we're introduced to this character Artemis, and we're told a great disturbance that's related to Christianity, that's related to the church, that's related to the gospel in Ephesus, is, has broken forth. And now he's telling us how that's happened. And we can trace it back to this one man, Demetrius. So we go, well, who is Demetrius? And we're told he's a silversmith, and that he makes idols for the temple of Artemis. And what he does is he, he, just like we read in Isaiah earlier, he fashions these false gods out of silver and then he sells them. And so if you've ever been to a foreign country uh, or somewhere where souvenirs are prevalent after you get done, maybe like a museum or a theme park, there's always like they funnel you through the gift shop and there's all these little trinkets that you can buy. That's kind of how I think of it. Uh, I think of even when we came off the Great Wall of China, there's just, they let you off at this area where there's just, so many little pop-up tents and people selling you things and, and you can buy all, you know, all kinds of fun stuff to like memorabilia. And so this is kind of what he did is made these little souvenirs and people would buy them and they'd take them into the temple of Artemis and they'd get them blessed and they'd take them home and utilize them for worship. And business was really, really good for Demetrius and other silversmiths or craftsmen. They made these idols and Demetrius, we're going to learn here in a second, recognizes that the gospel is, is upsetting the economy in Ephesus. It's spreading, and as people are converted to Christ, they are not buying as many idols. And so maybe, I, you know, if this was how this played out in my imagination a little bit, you could see a married couple uh, with, with children and a husband in the bathroom uh, brushing his teeth, and his wife says from the other room, you know, I, I was thinking this year, uh, you know, little Susie's graduating, uh, and, and the other kids, we've gotten them, them, them those nice idols made by Demetrius and the others, but, but I was thinking, you know what, maybe we should go with a book this year, a book instead. He says, yeah, yeah. spits out toothpaste. Hi, oh, yeah, that, that, that sounds good. You know, likewise, the businessman who always gives his top performing employees, oh, you know, we, we give idols 
It's that annual time to, to recognize the job well done. And he says, you know what, those idols that we order every year, can we, can we just put a hold on those? And they have books instead. You kind of see the economy is changing. People are buying less of these idols, is the point I'm trying to make. And Demetrius understands this. He recognizes the reason that people are buying less idols to Artemis is because they're coming to this Jesus. And we'll see in a second, this Paul who's preaching Jesus is saying, gods that are made by human hands are no gods. And that's bad for business. It's bad for Artemis. Who is Artemis, though? We need to ask the question. Artemis, uh, and if you have a KJV, it will be Latinized for you as Diana, right? Same person. You've just got the Latin version of the name instead of Artemis, uh, which is just simply transcribed from the Greek. And so uh, Artemis of the Ephesians is this great goddess. Uh, She was considered a nature god, and she was someone who helped women in labor. Uh, She was depicted often uh, as somebody who, like, hunted, so she'd have a bow and an arrow, and she was also considered the goddess of death. And so she um, was really associated with fertility. Everybody loved Artemis. She was big time, and her temple was big time. We we were talking next-level extravagant. It was four times the size of the Parthenon. It had pillars of 60 feet high and was about 425 feet by 225 feet. So that's much bigger than a football field. And it is two and a half times the size of the White House. This is a big temple and it overlooked the whole city. To the extent like Artemis worship in Ephesus was so prevalent that to be Ephesian was to, to be a worshiper of Artemis, right? And so any attack on Artemis or on her temple would be tantamount to an attack on Ephesus itself. Maybe if you want to think of how tightly tied this temple and Artemis are to the city of Ephesus, you could think of how the Notre, Notre Dame Cathedral is tied to Paris, kind of a symbol of Paris. Right? And just as many people will travel to see Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, many people would travel to see this grand temple of Artemis in Ephesus. I mean, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was a huge center for the Ephesian economy and identity. And so we can maybe understand a little bit why Demetrius and others get upset when they recognize that this gospel is negatively impacting Ephesus and Artemis. Their idols are in danger. I think when anybody finds their idols in danger, the first reaction is to try and protect them. Some of us may go, what are you talking about idols? We don't have idols here in the West. Right? There's not a statue in my house that I bow down to. But there are things in your heart that you live for. An idol is anything that you value is more important than God. If there is anything functionally more important to your happiness 
your identity, your hope, your meaning in life, then that thing is functionally your God. So, it's good to love your family. It's good to have hobbies. It's, it's a good thing to enjoy vacationing and traveling. It is a bad thing, an idolatrous thing to live for vacation and traveling. It is an idolatrous thing to live solely for your family. It is an idolatrous thing to live solely for your hobbies. And so friends, you have idols. And I wonder, when Jesus confronts them with the gospel and says, love me more than these, do you jump to defend those idols? As Demetrius is about to defend his idols here. Or do you quickly repent? Do you confess those things as those who brought their magic books forth to be burned? What, what sins have you given refuge to that you need to turn from? What, what good things do you need to take out of God's place and put in submission to him? Demetrius recognizes his idols are under attack, and so he takes to Twitter to help form a mob. Verse 25. When Demetrius had assembled them, that's the craftsmen, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, Men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised, and her magnificence may come to the verge of ruin the very one all of Asia and the world worship. And so Demetrius sees, he understands this, this threat to their business. Right? He, he gives a couple reasons why they need to be fired up. And, and one is uh, career and wealth. He's saying if God's made by hand are not God's, then we who make God's by hand are in trouble here. Business will no longer be good. We've been prospering, we've been flourishing, and if this trend continues and we're not able to sell as many of these little trinkets, we're, we're, we're in for it. And then secondly, he says, not only is our business in trouble, but our city is in trouble because Artemis may be dethroned from her majesty. She may be deposed. This is a threat. The, the, the great Artemis, everybody who comes to worship her very glory and magnificence, it's threatened by this gospel. Because you understand, if gods that are made by human hands are not gods, then people will understand that Artemis is not a god. That will undermine all of our culture. He's, he's rightly upset. He understands. He understands how the gospel has disturbed his business, has disturbed the culture in Ephesus, and so consequently, he disturbs the civic order. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, 
Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with confusion. They all rushed together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. And so you, can, you get the sense of this rage that they have been stirred up into. Our businesses are threatened. Our God is threatened. Will we stand for it? No! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they take to the streets and they've got their little uh, flaming, was it pitchfork? Pitchfork? What is it? Torches, there it is. They've got their torches and their pitchforks. And they're like, where, where are these Christians at? Where is this Paul? And they can't find Paul. And they're like, these two, they were with Paul. Let's grab them and just march down the streets towards the amphitheater where everybody gets together. We're going to figure out what to do with these guys, what to do about this. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I couldn't help but when I was reading this, I'm like, man, Gaius and, I don't have to read his name, Aristarchus, they didn't really do anything. They're just about their business. But simply being associated with Paul, simply being associated with Jesus, is enough to get them dragged to the amphitheater. And it struck me that believing in Jesus does not guarantee your safety. In fact, oftentimes it does the opposite guarantees that you will be in danger. 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15.20, remember the word I spoke to you, Jesus speaking, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And of course, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And so these two disciples, well, they meet the teeth of some wolves. Oftentimes, I think that we forget the call to follow Christ is a call to carry a cross, to be ready to suffer. Not that we would seek suffering out, but that we wouldn't shy away from it either. That we would be lion-hearted sheep, courageous with a deep trust in our God. What am I getting at here? Is that as I really thought about this, I thought, I think maybe one of my idols might be safety. And I look for evidence of this in my life. Well, you know, Maybe you've had this experience too. What do you say to people when they're leaving your home after they've just traveled to, to meet you? Be safe. Stay safe. And what do I often say to my kids when I send them out the door? Be, be safe. But you know what would be much better to say? Be brave. Be kind. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There's, there's danger out there, but my desire for you most in your life isn't necessarily your safety, but obedience to Jesus. The question that, that struck me as I belabor this point is, am I 
more concerned with my safety than I am with my passion for Jesus. Or, to phrase it, to make it look different, am I more concerned with the safety of others or their passion for Jesus? Would I rather my children stay safe or would I rather they follow hard after Jesus? Do I, do I think if I, could, if I could choose, and option A was for my children to grow up and to have great jobs, great careers, great families, and live well into their 90s before they die, or option B, to live into their young 20s and be persecuted for their faith overseas and die as martyrs, which would I choose? Is their safety my priority? Or is my higher priority for them that they would know and love the Lord? But what are your priorities for those in your life? What are your priorities for yourself? Because the very nature of being a disciple is to be as a sheep among wolves. Gaius, Gaius and Aristarchus are sheep. And the wolves come for them because they are associated with Jesus. Friends, are you associated with Jesus enough that wolves will recognize you? Don't, don't love safety, and safety is a good thing. Don't want to take it for granted. But don't love your safety and your life more than Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37 to 39, The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Don't love your safety more than you love Jesus. The one who loves their safety more than they love Jesus is not worthy of Jesus. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life will find it. I think when you really come to have faith in Jesus and you're following Jesus, there's this glorious truth that happens. It means the worst thing that could possibly happen to you has already happened. You've been united to Christ by faith, which means you have been crucified with Christ. Worst case scenario of your life is true. And the best case scenario of your life is already true. In union with Christ, raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, you'll be made like him. This is, this is good news. When Jesus is your good shepherd, you can, as a sheep, go out with a lion's heart among wolves and faithfully proclaim the gospel. Wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. These men get dragged into the throes of the crowd. And Paul wants to join them. Look at verse 30. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people... The disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials, I should have wrote this word down. It's not in my translations. 
Asiarchs, maybe? This is a word that starts with A in most of your translations. And it means provincial officials, as the CSB brings it apart, or city officials. Even the city officials, provincial officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. And so I love this. Um, on the one hand, you have the church or disciples that are there giving Paul good counsel, and they're saying, Paul, it's a really bad idea to go into the thick of a mob and to try to reason with them. Right? They're like, don't you know that Benjamin Franklin once said, a mob has many heads but few brains? Right? I think the lesson for us is to take wise counsel. That sometimes we might feel strongly about doing something, but that might not be what's best for us. We can have the counsel of the church and fellow disciples to help us to live wisely. This is not the first time we've seen this with Paul. And I don't know if they um, persuaded him with reason or if they were like holding him back, like four guys holding him in a chair. No, you're not going to go out into the mob. I don't know. But they, it says they wouldn't let him go. Maybe as a kid yesterday, Glenn and I were cleaning up some of the damage around here, and I said, Glenn, I think I'm going to climb up into that tree or try to climb way high up into that tree and get that limb down. And he said, brother, you'd have to whip me before I let you do that. He was giving wise counsel, keeping me from being foolish. It was easy because I, I wasn't all about climbing anyway. I was afraid of heights, but I listened. It's helpful. And also here we, we have these city leaders, and you'll notice they don't hate Paul. So in fact, they're identified as his friends. And they encourage him, don't, don't go into the mob. They don't want him to go. Paul has a good reputation with them. And so here's, here's one of the major things in our passage that um, I want you to see. The gospel is offensive. It will offend. But we don't have to offend. And so the way I want to phrase this, um, don't be afraid to offend others with the gospel, but don't aim to offend with the gospel. That's not our goal. And you can see that Paul has managed here to wisely share the gospel convictionally and with kindness in such a way that he hasn't created enemies for himself. Yes, there, there are some who understand all the implications of Jesus and, and, and they're up in a tizzy right now. But there are also some who know Paul. They know his message. Now, you know what, Paul is a pretty good guy. I don't, I don't agree with all his theology, but I don't want pain to come to him. We like Paul. And this is the kind of witness we want to have in our culture. Those Christians, they're, you know, I don't necessarily agree with all of their theology, but they're good people. They work hard. They love their neighbors. Hope that we would be a people that is identified with both conviction, holding to these truths, and with kindness. Paul's not allowed to go in, and yet the confusion still swells. Verse 33. Sorry, verse 32. Some were shouting one thing and some another, because the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And so they're, they're shouting, I'm angry! I'm angry too! Why are we angry? We don't know! It's confusion. And so now... There's like the camera zooms in here. 
on this group of Jews in the crowd who give instructions to Alexander. I should read the verse. Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander. After they pushed him to the front, motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make a defense to the people. And so you can picture this. There are some Jews there, and they're like, hey, um, things are going bad for these Christians. We need to distance ourselves, make sure that they don't consider Christianity a sect of Judaism, which is how most people thought of it. And so who can get up there and let them know, like, hey, we're, we're, we're cool with Artemis, right? You don't need to come after us. We're not with Paul and these Christians. Now look around, and they, they talk this guy, Alexander, into it. Alexander, say, say something, Alexander. And so he gets up, and ready to make a defense. And then all of a sudden, the crowd realizes he's Jewish. Verse 34, but when they recognized that he was a Jew... They all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Not willing to consider whether or not the arguments were legitimate. They shouted down the arguments. Didn't consider whether or not Christianity was true. This clung to their, their beliefs. They weren't listening to, to any kind of reason. So here, and you're a non-Christian, I want to encourage you to consider the evidence of Christianity. That Jesus Christ really is raised from the dead. That God really has revealed himself in his word. Because you really have been made for a relationship with God. If you need a place to start with this, you can read N.T. Wright, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Excellent book. Christian, I wonder if we really rejoice in what the evidence reveals. And what I mean is, we believe in Jesus, and sometimes our passions wane so much because we get focused on other things. And as, as I read, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours, they shouted it. The only time I th- see anything happen for two hours at like a college football game, let's go, Mountaineers, right? I just went, when was the last time that I spent two hours in prayer. Could it be that these people are more passionate about following a false God than I am about following the living God? What about you? So the crowd is in a fever pitch, and then finally... It is quelled by a city clerk in verse 35. When the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, People of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Nobody knows much about this image that fell from heaven. Most think it was a meteorite that fell at some point, and they were like, oh, this is from Artemis. It's part of the deal. Verse 36, therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and not do anything rash. 
For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened here today, since there's no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And so he, he gives three primary reasons why they should just relax and recognize this isn't a big deal. One, everybody knows that Artemis wasn't made by human hands. She came from heaven. This rock fell from the sky. So everybody knows Artemis is a legit god and that she is part of the city of Ephesus. She's great. You she's not going anywhere, so calm down. The second argument is these guys are innocent. Luke is kind of putting in bold for us they're innocent. They're innocent. They have been ministering the gospel wisely as sheep among wolves, but they are innocent. There's no charge to be brought against them. They have not slandered Artemis in any way, which again is really impressive because I think oftentimes uh, a poor approach to evangelism starts with uh, the way you're living your life now is really bad and terrible and you're worshiping a false god, so turn and follow Jesus. And they haven't done that here. They have struck this balance of allowing the gospel to offend and sharing the gospel faithfully, but not aiming to offend. Because they're innocent, and if you want to bring charges, do it legally. And then the last reason that they should dispel is because all of a sudden, they are in danger of Rome's judgment. They're saying, the Romans are going to come up in here because we are rioting, and that's going to be big trouble for us. Big trouble for everyone in the government. So go home. So there are three ironies I want to point out to you. Uh, irony number one, the silversmith who stirs the crowd up and the clerk use the same argument to different ends. So it's kind of a fun argument. Uh, Artemis says, uh, we've got, we got to be worried about uh, our city and our god, Artemis. They're go she's going to be dethroned. And then the city clerk, on the other hand, says, everybody relax because... This is the city of Ephesus, and our great goddess Artemis is here. This is really interesting irony that we see. Secondly, um, you'll notice that in verse I should find that here. Uh, 26, no, well, at some point, he says, our business is at risk or our business is in danger. It's there in 23 through 27 somewhere. Uh, it says, our businesses are at risk because of this message. If gods that are made by human hands are not gods, it's in danger. Is the idea the same flavor there. And you'll also notice now in verse 40, it says, in fact, we run the risk or we are in danger of being charged with rioting. And so the irony is, is that they, they thought the real big danger was going to be the gospel. The danger to their business was the gospel. And actually, it turns out right now, they've put themselves in danger from Rome. Third irony, this whole section is kind of has that uh, title over it. There arose a disturbance concerning the way or concerning Christianity, concerning the church. And it turns out that this disturbance is actually the result of Demetrius. 
Christians didn't cause this disturbance. Those who worship Artemis did. Indeed, the Christians were innocent. Gaius and Aristarchus go free. The bloodthirsty shouts of the crowd, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, Artemis of the Ephesians, they do no good. They are delivered. Jesus was not. Though even more innocent, entirely so, Jesus was not delivered from the bloodthirsty crowd that was shouting. Not great as Artemis of the Ephesians, but crucify him, crucify him. Indeed, Jesus could have delivered himself, but he would not. Instead, he gave his life that he might save those who deserve death. Friends, God does not guarantee our safety in his sovereignty. He sends us out as sheep among wolves. But he sends us out as one who knows suffering firsthand. Jesus Christ himself came as the Lamb of God among wolves. He was crucified for sin so that we might be forgiven. He was raised from the dead so that we might be free from death, so that, that we might learn not to shout about the glory of our idols, so that our shouting wouldn't be, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is scientism, great is materialism, great is fill in the blank with your idol, but instead we would say, great is the Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world. Holy, holy, holy is this God that we might with John share the experience of all those in heaven. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Every creature in heaven, on earth and under the earth, on the sea and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen! And the elders fell down. And worshipped. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you this morning in worship and praise, recognizing that if Jesus Christ hadn't disturbed our lives, hadn't disrupted our lives, that we would be dead men and women with no hope. We thank you that indeed the one who is risen from the dead 
has called to us with his voice and given us life by his spirit. He's called us to himself as his people, saying, repent and believe in me. Calling us to come to him, declaring, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Declaring to us, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who trusts in me, though he die yet, shall he live. We thank you that we hear the voice of Christ. We thank you that we know the voice of the good shepherd and that you have called us together here as the sheep of his pasture. We pray you would help us to hear Jesus' voice this morning in this word and that his voice would echo in our hearts as we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper and as we go out into the week that we would continue to hear Jesus say to us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I love you. You are mine. Lord, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for this wonderful salvation that you've given to us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.